<laughs> Welcome to Thoughts on Art, the quarantine report. I'm Amir Guberstein, and with me in Poland is Przemek Piszczek. Hi, Przemek. How are you? Hi, Amir. Good. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> Thankfully, I didn't uh, trip up on my words like Juan Gonzalez. Wait, but... I got. I gotta yeah, performatively clear my throat now. <clears throat> <laughs> i always feel bad though when when juan uh gets tongue-tied that's how i feel when i'm podcasting uh, same and i was telling you he uh i was watching it online for the first time in like ages today uh the video video stream and he's like uh recording from the some rutgers library i guess that they <laughs> set up for him i guess he can't associate uh. in person with amy oh no you'd think they have We're- like uh really like thoroughly thought out like a covid testing regimen or something like that to have them both recording in the same studio considering uh she's allegedly a millionaire like you mentioned uh nothing alleged about it i just straight up looked it up (laughs) on google which i'm gonna do now again amy goodman net worth (laughs) is she on one of those celebrity net worth sites (laughs) three million three million oh my god Sorry, I almost spit out my uh, <laughs> energy drink of the week, which is called B Power Energy Drink Mojito. Oh, it's mojito flavored. <laughs> yeah, she's uh, sixty three years old. I'm surprised. She. I thought she was older, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> yeah, she's my parents' age. I thought she was older. Your parents are that huh. young. Yep. Oh, interesting. My dad. Yeah, my had... dad's like uh, approaching seventy. Well, he looks great. Thank you. It's the Slavic. Uh, uh, I'm trying to say something inoffensive, but uh, the uh, taut high cheekbones. True. Yeah. <laughs> he does. He looks very Russian. My dad. He does. And like, I can't tell if I look Slavic as well, but uh, yeah, I think you do. Yeah. I'll take. I mean, uh, yeah. I'll take your word for it. You uh, you also look uh, Asian since Israelis are Asian. Yeah, true, I am technically Asian. Yeah, and point zero point one percent. No, sorry, point zero zero one percent Neanderthal, according to uh, twenty three and Me. But uh, I didn't need twenty three and Me to tell me that. I could just have asked a woman. <laughs> Maybe next week we can go through our twenty uh, three and Me results and compare. Wait, why wait? <laughs> uh this could be a great uh, wendy segment oh my god yeah she uh once the audience is allowed back in she racially profiles them and then gets them to show their 23 and me page yeah uh it's funny because i started watching again um do you remember sliders that young adult oh yeah uh, the canadian one yeah so good with jerry Maguire. Wait, uh, Jerry, uh, what's his name? Oh, the not one who Jerry replaced McGuire. Wendy. Yeah, yeah that's, why am I thinking of Jerry Maguire? That's a Tom Cruise movie, right? Yeah, but what was his name? Jerry, God. the one who replaced Wendy when she was away on sick leave. Yeah, Th- that would have been my segue. But uh, Jerry O'Connell, sorry, <laughs> oh, Jerry O'Connell, Quinn Mallory. What a great show! I mean, to have grown up in. Uh, well, I guess it's it, it aired in 1995. What a what a time to uh, be alive, TV wise. Such a great show. Yeah, those were the days. 
those were the days. Wait, I'm logging into my 23andMe just for some uh, <laughs> some funny tidbits. <clears throat> Let's see. Uh, while we're both logging in, I just want to thank all of our listeners for sending feedback and for sharing uh, thoughts on art on their different social media channels. Uh, we've heard that we've kept a lot of people company while they've been battling COVID. So we're glad that we could, uh, help you make it through the rain. And also the mental COVID of the Trump administration. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. And we really started. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say, we really started this podcast at the right time since, uh, it's winding down. Mm-hmm. So, and, uh, no one canceled us yet which to me only indicates that our listenership is really low. <laughs> so <laughs> spread the word. <laughs> there's a there's an upwards uh trend on the chart actually. It's an upward trickle. And actually I'm going to go into that right now. <laughs> and I'm going to shout out somebody from our lowest listenership country. <laughs> <laughs> what, what what continent is that? Uh, let's see. Where does your audience come from? So there's a three-way tie. Mm-hmm. This is from October 31st to November 10th. Uh, there's a three-way tie with Bulgaria, Indonesia, and Portugal. So shout out to the listeners from those three countries. You mean a lot to us. Wait, who do we know in Indonesia? I have no idea. Even Bulgaria. That's a word of mouth uh, achievement. And if I go to... uh... No, I don't know how to see the rest. It's Mm -hmm. too complicated. (laughs) Um, Yeah, also after our last episode talking about uh, Ivanka's conversion, I had to go back to Sex in the City (laughs) to just make sure that my, my, uh, my statement about charlotte's conversion uh, venue was uh, right and it was actually wrong she did in fact convert at a temple emmanuel as you had suggested ah uh i don't think they shot emmanuel it. emmanuel yeah uh i don't think they actually shot it on site which i guess they could have but it was shot elsewhere um oh, interesting yeah and i was just watching the like the final like conversion step episode yesterday where she uh she uh, dips in the mikveh mm-hmm. and uh emerges as a jew as a waspy <laughs> jew which is like uh, ivanka yeah, it's that simple which is just a true testament of the soft power of judaism it infiltrates <laughs> the heart <laughs> should i convert uh should that be our uh, 100 episode story arc on this podcast as well <laughs> well first of all you have to knock three times on the rabbi's door each time he opens it and shuts it in your face and then you just got to try again and on the third after the third attempt you may start your conversion process that, that's a charming uh entry point to the faith yeah are there any jews in your area there are in the town nearby, the bigger town, Jare, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a Jewish cemetery or like a part in the kind of bigger municipal cemetery. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was there for uh, like the Day of the Dead, November 1st, the day after Halloween, uh, a couple of years ago, 
I walked around that part of the cemetery and there's, uh, like recently deceased people. Mm-hmm. It's not like most of the graves are from, you know, before the war or something. There's like actually Jews that lived in the area. Right. And still do apparently. And there was, sorry, <coughs> sorry, I'm choking on the energy drink, <laughs> <laughs> the mojito. Um, no. And there's, uh, up until a few years ago, there was like a Jewish community center there, like the Jewish Gemeinde. Uh, but I think just because of the aging population, uh, they wound down operations. So, mm-hmm. Funnily enough, when I lived in Berlin, I got a monthly stipend from the like ex-Soviet Jewish community in Berlin, the one oh, wow. on the uh, Oranienburgstrasse, mm-hmm. with a like, classic synagogue. And uh, yeah, they uh, they sustained me and my cause for a good like five years while I was in school. It was just a hundred euros. Amazing. Yeah, it was just a hundred euros a month, but like a hundred euros in Berlin goes a very long way. <laughs> oh, totally. Well, especially back then too. Yeah, that was like a quarter of rent on a one bedroom. Yeah, exactly. Like my first rent was two hundred and fifty euro a month, and then. I guess the last, the very last apartment we lived in, in Vetting, which was like, uh, I think it was like a hundred, you've been there. How big uh, would you say yes. it was? It's like a hundred something square feet, square meters. Sorry. Uh, yeah, maybe it was a hundred square meters. Yeah. It was really big. Like like, f- like a thousand square feet. Yeah. Exactly. Like it was a, a good sized apartment. It had two bedrooms, I think, a living room, an eating kitchen. It was kind of horseshoe shaped. Yeah. Yeah, it was the perfect apartment and took up the entire floor. Yeah, it could have totally been uh, featured on Open House NYC, the Berlin edition. <laughs> <laughs> totally. If if you just put in some of those, uh, what are those Moroccan rugs called? The oh my God. trending ones. We should ask you know Catherine Bernard. I hear she just came back from the souk <laughs> with a parrot on her shoulder. Oh my God. Well, speaking of Berlin, I made a very big, uh, life changing decision yesterday. Mm-hmm. Are you transitioning? I'm <laughs> yes. To be a Berliner. Oh, really? Yes. Oh my God. What, uh, what caused it? What well, happened? my old, my old, uh, apartment became available or is coming available, uh, apparently uh in the new year and i'm gonna move back in and spend more time in berlin full time full time or just more way more like let's say 70 30 or 80 20 i just uh i really miss being closer to friends dating Mm -hmm. um i miss just walking out of the house and easily getting a coffee things like that smoke filled uh, bars po- poorly <laughs> ventilated vegan restaurant storefronts uh oil, oil smell everywhere from frumpy boxy ladies getting yelled at for no reason <laughs> um, um, the the east side of alexanderplatz that's that oh just smells like a huge ashtray like an ashtray and a urinal cake <laughs> with, and it's open air there. <laughs> yeah. And like, there's I such just, a retention uh, of odors there, which is funny. It's oh like poor, poor, like circulation or something. Yeah. So 
Yeah, I, it's not that I miss Berlin per se, but I miss my friends and I miss seeing my brother and his girlfriend and uh, yeah, just having uh, more of a social life because in the countryside, it is a bit difficult. So. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe uh, maybe you can work for Deutsche Welle further exposing <laughs> problems, structural problems at the new uh, airport. That would be good, actually. Uh, or I should start like a YouTube investigative report series in English where I go undercover and then, <laughs> uh, you know, like a Channel 7 kind of thing. And then I, you know, outright go in with a camera and a crew and just confront people. Mm-hmm. I, I think that could be good. Just like uh, <laughs> bullying hostile businesses into things. Just, uh, don't, just don't forget the uh, customers never write in Berlin. So. Exactly. I think that's what the the topic should be, is just confronting that mindset. Uh-huh. Um, but speaking of the customer being right, I've decided to start a donut empire. So, Ooh. yeah, I need your help brainstorming some ideas for a uh, um, donut shop. You know, I was, <laughs> I was walking across uh, 23rd Street yesterday uh and i passed the chelsea hotel and i guess all the storefronts at the bottom of the chelsea hotel are also like getting evicted i like i couldn't really tell if it's covid related but there's like a i guess there's donut the, plant yeah that donut <laughs> place is there and it's just no it's no longer there i was like i was walking across really the, yeah i was walking across to the f train huh. and i was like let's treat myself to a uh to a donut there and it, it was closed and i think you know there's just the last couple of tenants who haven't been like formally squeezed out of the Chelsea hotel yeah. at this point, but it just seems like the whole area is like getting ready for the last push of completely redoing that building. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of that donut plant, uh, I remember going there. It was very dry. Mm-hmm. I was not very impressed cause everyone was raving about it. But when I've been to the lower East side location, where is that? It's lower East side, right? Where, uh, where lower east side? wait, let, let my fingers do the walking one second. I mean, you know um, us. We usually uh, get our donuts at the uh, 7th Avenue Donut Diner. Oh, those are amazing. Here in Park Slope. Those, yeah, those are so fucking good. We have to go there if international travel is ever allowed again. Yeah. Uh, yeah, those are really good. And Peter Pan. Yeah. That's like my American donut inspiration. And what I really want to get into is like the Polish style of donuts, which you and I have had in Warsaw, mm-hmm. uh, where they're like crack, I, uh, which I, I know I'm not supposed donuts. to say anymore. Why? They're so good. <laughs> <laughs> they're so good. I mean, the magic is that they're fried in lard and that the filling is inside like a pierogi and then you fry the donut. You don't fill it after. Mm. So... Speaking of which, I'll never forget a friend of the pods, Thomas, is uh, opening a Nikel Bushnell. I'm probably botching the last name. Bushan. Bushan. How do you say? Yeah. I'm thinking of Candice. Uh, Bushnell. Is- Bushnell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyways, he had a he had an opening of uh, of his show of his beautiful works at uh, Nikel's space, and uh, his mom made a whole tray of uh, pierogies Ooh. with potato Ooh. stuffing. And sauerkraut. Um, actually, so how have sweet. we not uh, given a shout out to Thomas yet on the pod? Totally. Uh, Tom, Thomas, sorry, Thomas Tomchak, shout out to you. You want to say Great something? Great artist. You want to say something in Polish for him? 
Jesteś bardzo wysoki i przystojny. <laughs> right on. Did you get that, Amir? I, I actually did not, no. <laughs> I said, you're very tall and very handsome. <laughs> uh-huh. how, would I, how was I supposed to know that? Anyways, just, just for the record, I'm 72.3% Ashkenazi Jewish, which I clearly did not need a 23andMe genetic <laughs> testing to tell me. Uh, I'm 26.3% uh, Eastern European, which like, how is that like not the same as Ashkenazi Jewish or like, just like, like an overwhelming overlap? But it says that like on, on a top location of where at, like origins, I'm from M- the Masovian Voivodeship. Oh, okay. In yeah. Poland. And then I'm 1% broadly European, which like whatever. I don't know what that means. And then I have 0.2% broadly Western Asian and North African, and then 0.2% unassigned. So I guess I'm 0.2% that bitch. That's, that's <laughs> the, or maybe Nate, uh, uh, what's his name from 538 could uh, claim this a margin error. <laughs> uh, well, okay, Masovian is uh, where Warsaw is. It's that. Oh, uh, really? province essentially yeah. yeah and then that one time we took the train from uh Jaren to warsaw or yeah. we passed uh this village where my grandmother's from where the black madonna's oh, yeah. from chestachova oh chestachova yeah the small city yeah yeah so that's so that's, that's yeah, where in my, southwestern uh, poland yeah that's where my grandmother was deported into the camps from <laughs> shout out <laughs> um yeah. Well, it was just Kristallnacht, which... Uh, oh, true. On the 9th, which is also the day of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Oh, my God. <sighs> well, speaking of Berlin... <laughs> speaking, yeah, speaking of... Oh, wait a second. Eastern Europe. I, I, had a, I had a Jewish segue that I wanted to bring up. I just... <laughs> wa- watching Sex in the City yesterday... I uh it got me to like googling a little bit and I uh I ended up finding this um like Charlotte's top 10 partners listicle on Cosmopolitan uh which totally remind me of that time she was uh she was having a, a little affair with that Hasidic artist in his Williamsburg loft do you remember that <laughs> Yes <laughs> I just I can't remember what type of art he uh made I'm going to look it up sure the 23 and me lists are so hilarious. It's like when you click on a ethnic group or a place, it's like explore the genetics of Ashkenazi Jewish people. And then it shows you three classic holiday treats. Etrog, a symbol of Sukkot. Here, here, how to listen to Kletzmer music. Oh my God. <laughs> I wonder if this was penned by a Jewish intern or if it was the task of like a, a M- mfa graduate <laughs> underpaid um okay can i tell you my composition 96 mm-hmm. percent eastern european <laughs> that's uh yeah there's no you can't you can't ask for a recount on that it's overwhelming yeah uh and when you click on it it says highly likely matches poland and then it shows a color-coded map and the strongest two regions are uh, in the northeast, which is where my mom's from, mm-hmm. but then the other one shows that region around Krakow, where the mountains are, 
which is where I just was for that ceramics residency. And, uh, I did not know our family comes from there. So guess I'm a Gural, which is like a, a mountain man. <laughs> Interesting. Is that etymologically related to Ural? I wonder, maybe the it Urals? is. Yeah, Gural, Ural, maybe. And so that's that's kind of like being an Appalachian. <laughs> that's <laughs> like that's same your adver- cultural baggage. Yeah, that's your adversity. <laughs> Should immediately find its way into your press release. Totally. Uh, uh, wait. So you said you're moving. You're moving back to Berlin on uh, January first. Yeah. Uh, not not a specific date, but in January or February, and I'm uh, gonna be the time to make the donuts guy. You know, I'm just uh, trying trying to be a CEO and build an empire. You, uh, you adjacent to my art practice. Yeah. <laughs> I bet you also missed all the performance art in Berlin. Oh God. <laughs> um i will okay full disclosure performance art is my least favorite genre Mm -hmm. uh or medium Mm -hmm. uh in contemporary art what are what are your general general reservations about this medium would you say uh i feel like it's all about spectacle Mm-hmm. Mm, a lot of performance that I've been exposed to, I think would be better in a theater mm-hmm. on a stage rather than in the round in a gallery or a museum. Uh, another reservation I have is I feel like in the last few years, a uh, performance has really exploded uh, because it is, a cheaper way to fill a programming calendar. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though there's, you know, should be a lot of costs associated with it, like paying performers, but it seems like a lot of performers don't get paid mm-hmm. or get paid really shitty. And even a, a top curator from a top institution shared that with me and said, Oh yeah, they love performance cause it's easy and cheap. Yeah. So, so there you have it. It's definitely a placeholder, an easy placeholder. Yeah. Um, I will play devil's advocate for a second. And I will say the f- uh, performance art photographs very well. And in that oh, sense, definitely. it's it's captured in a way that sort of stands the test of time and is eternal. So you sort of get to enjoy both aspects of it, both the sort of immediate by, you know, viewing it and being present in the space and also the artist's a performer whatever can sort of add it to their portfolio there's beautiful pictures and those yeah. those photographs or these tableaus that come out of it are a very i think a very valid you know uh art medium in and of itself yeah um when i, I when i lived in berlin i at least in my few years in the sorry in the first few years there i uh hung out with uh with a bunch of uh dancers some of them israelis and so I was exp- exposed to a lot of contemporary art dance pieces. And I would go to like Tanzim August, which is the uh, the annual. It's annual, right? It's not biannual. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I would go to this annual uh, contemporary dance festival that would take place in a couple of venues. And um, 
I don't know. It was pretty interesting. Like, obviously, there were major duds, and the whole premise, I feel like, of a uh, contemporary dance pieces. Sorry, I'm veering for a second from the like um, from performance art just to like. I feel like contemporary dance is essentially turned into performance art without anybody kind of realizing that it happened. Um, and so when I when I would see all these shows, of course, some of them would feel like you're taking hostage and you can't even leave the space. And you're like, what am I looking at? It's like impossible to decipher. It's like jerky movements with like droney techno impossible <laughs> soundtrack to it. But um, the ones that were good, if I had to like, I'm, I'm not a pro and I, I don't think I can even like perfectly articulate what I think is good about contemporary dance. I can only say that those who have like a good command of their body and understanding will always do something interesting enough with it for you to like feel like okay they're onto something or there's there's just dialogue between me the viewer and the dancer um my issue i guess with performance art is just the the fact that it is no longer like taking place in the um in the context of uh, like dance festivals but it's it's in galleries and it's in like a gallery adjacent venues and events and um much like video work i feel like i just struggle with my add to kind of stay focused focused sorry um and um i don't know it's just it's it's not an attainable art form for me i'm like going through the list of all the performance art that i've seen in my life and trying to like remember if anything stuck out that I remember and loved. Is there any sp- specific performance that you ever saw that you still remember? Uh, my first few months in Berlin, I saw an amazing performance. <laughs> I believe this was Lindsay Lawson. Have I talked about this on the podcast? No, I, can't I, don't, remember. I don't think you have. No. Okay. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was Lindsay. Cause I didn't really know anyone in Berlin at that point, but I remember going to something pretty sure it was her. If it's not, and she's listening, please correct us. Uh, but it was one of those, uh, chimes, you know, that like a percussionist has with a drum kit or mm-hmm. like, a you know, in a concert and there was a cloth on it and the performance was trying to remove this cloth without creating a noise with the chimes oh i see you know not not disturbing them and it was just so funny because it was like this comedic cliche Mm -hmm. of uh (laughs) of performance i feel like (laughs) we all had a laugh (laughs) I, i feel like this whole podcast is like like taking a blind person <laughs> to like a any a theater show or like an art gallery and totally. explaining to them the art it's like the boys yeah. piece explaining the art to the fish <laughs> but i i feel like my description really uh yeah no it's great i mean really just put it all together there <laughs> i mean i told you i uh i had uh, therapy a couple of weeks ago where i brought up this uh issue that i think i have with my therapist where i told her like i think i talk so much nonsense on a podcast where i'm just i like the way i think it is pretty straightforward but the way it comes out is just so biden-esque and so she put me to the task to just like describe something to her in like really sort of plain english straightforwardly and uh i don't even know why i'm bringing this up i guess i'm just trying to say that if you don't understand me believe you me it's pretty clear in my head (laughs) Okay, 
another performance yeah. that, okay, people can Google this. I'm sure there's YouTube documentation. Uh, and this is something that did not happen in a gallery context. And I think this is the make or break point for me. I feel like when it happens in a gallery or a museum and you're standing uncomfortably or you're sitting on a hard floor, you know, and you're getting Charlie horses and cramps and your patients wearing thin, uh, that's when you just begin to hate everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but okay. So a uh, friend of the pod, Brendan Fernandez, uh, and how to dress well, uh, Tom Krell. Oh yeah. Uh, they did a piece at Berliner Festspiele. Uh, so this was in the context of a theater on a stage, you know, kind of a more uh, traditional context. And there were musicians, uh, many dancers. Uh, Brendan choreographed it with with another person, uh, Simon Portugal. And costumes and there you really felt all these elements coming together Mm -hmm. uh, to create a performance work but it wasn't a typical concert or a typical you know dance piece yeah and i felt like this was something really great and it was 70 minutes long uh yeah i just feel like that's the context where it works right i i'll bring up another example of a, a performance piece that i I think of fondly when I look back uh, by Maria Hasabi. She had a uh, she had a bunch of performers at the MoMA atrium, so the staircase leading up to the atrium in 2016, um, and they would essentially very slowly throughout the day crawl up the stairs, and then continue to like crawl around the atrium. And the reason it was so captivating was because it felt like you're not actually experiencing reality in real time, but you're actually sort of experiencing it in kind of fast, uh, sort of fast forwarding it or in a, like a faster pace or so. And there was something kind of, I mean, I won't say thought provoking, but to me, I guess a successful performance piece is a, is a, is art that kind of makes you stop for a second to try to understand the connection between you and what's done to the space or kind of notice that the space may have been altered, which is kind of a, it's a trope and a cliche of art speak and art English to talk about art as something that interacts with the space. Uh, It usually falls flat as an argument when Mm -hmm. you talk about, like wall works or even sculptural inanimate work. But I feel like there is merit to this claim when you apply it to actual performance art. Um, and so that's one piece that I guess we can link to our um, Instagram account that I found really interesting. You would essentially walk past these, these like dancers. So we're just very slowly like crawling up the stairs. It was just, it's hard to explain why it was impactful but i just found it so just so fascinating i think like you said in that situation it did actually engage the space and the architecture and it could have only really happened in that context and not something that was just transported from a stage into like an in the round you know gallery setting because like oftentimes you you just constantly uh in press releases 
find that trope cliche of like this uh this work activates the space or like uh dialogues with the space and you're like no it doesn't or like can you explain exactly. can you explain to me in your own words how it activates the space like what yeah. does it even mean to activate a space yeah i mean like people shopping in a mall is that activating space i don't know yeah exactly <laughs> maybe the the human fire watchers at the berlin airport that, <laughs> that's an activation of space <laughs> Well, speaking of fire, was there any chance of getting set on fire at this performance? Oh my god, no, there was not. Why Why on earth would you ask that question, Prashemik? Do you have something in mind? <laughs> Talk to me. Uh, well, uh, according to our friends at Artnet News... Amir. Yeah. Uh, sorry, our Bible. <laughs> Artnet Noose. <laughs> uh, performance art has always been about intimacy. Can it make it through the social distancing era with its soul intact? Okay, first of all, I just have to say it has not been about intimacy. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a misunderstanding of the uh, term intimacy. Yeah. Because, I mean, intimacy doesn't necessarily have to be an in-person sort of physical dialogue. Yeah. If anything, it's a... And like, com- you yeah. s- uh, like you said about the documentation, actually, I think, like you said, uh, with the photo documentation, but I think video documentation as well, it actually amplifies that intimacy and that effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you're never, you know, like up in someone's crotch as they're performing yeah. or you know, eye to eye, unless they're really uh, pushing their way into you and trying to knock over lighter fluid. But um, <laughs> I mean, I always feel awkward at performances. It's like, like the Queen's Royal Guard. Like, I, oh God, I just, the intimacy, if anything, makes me feel uncomfortable being that close to, uh, to like uh, active, active artists. Well, that's how I used to feel with strippers. Like, <laughs> like when, how when, so? <laughs> like when friends were like, "Let's go to Teasers," which was like the the heterosexual four men uh, strip bar in Winnipeg. Yeah, and then you're there, and then you know the the ladies like writhing and making eye contact all up in your face, and I was just so mortified. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I, I just, I just go by the Elaine Bennis uh, motto, which is, if she sees freaks in the street, she never ever stares at them, and yet she's careful not to look away because she doesn't want to make the freaks feel uncomfortable. <laughs> that's just, I feel like that's the New York City cred. Like that's just the, I mean, when you live in a city with so many like different types of people, you like, you don't want to not acknowledge people but you also can't stare at them and so being in such close proximity to people who like essentially ask for your attention me it feels makes me feel uncomfortable yeah <sighs> but uh do we want to talk about this one specific uh, dance troupe yeah so uh well okay so the story goes through you know, the, the trials and tribulations of performance work, uh, in our COVID era, uh, for example, uh, should I read some of this article? Yeah, or? sure. 
Okay, so, uh, you know, according to uh, Dorian uh, Batitska um, at Artnet News, uh, it's been nearly a year of screen-based art viewing for most of us, but over the summer, some lucky viewers were able to catch a glimpse of in-person performance art during a brief moment of respite in between lockdowns. Uh, after months of sheltering in place, Marina Abramovich's highly anticipated opera in Munich and a brand new Tino Segal piece in Vienna offered a breath of fresh air, even if from behind masks and in controlled spaces with one tenth of the normal audience. Okay, I want to know what uh, is happening with the Marina Abramovich uh, Foundation and those funds that were kickstarted. <laughs> First of all, I mean, is that supposed to be an objective statement that it's highly anticipated? Her opera, like, I don't know that it's that, all that interesting. Uh, maybe, maybe the public at large because she's such a stratospheric name now. But, mm-hmm. and I mean, I you, mean know, you know me, I'm a big opera buff. You're you're an opera queen. A uh, friend of the pod, Ika, hates opera, but is very much in the world of performance and theater. I'm sure he could also care less if he would like to correct that. Well, wait, he hates opera. How's that possible? Yes, he does. We should have him on for an opera round table. I mean, actually an interesting point that I want to make is that throughout my seven years in Berlin, I think I was just turned off eventually on the performance arts because it just felt so aggressively experimental to me that when I moved to New York and saw my first uh, opera at the at the uh, Metropolitan House in Lincoln Center, Jordan took me on my birthday to see uh, Wagner's Tannhäuser. Sorry, our Jewish listeners, if you're offended by this <laughs> by this recounting. Uh, so the the opera house at Lincoln Center is known to be. Um, I mean, I wouldn't call it conservative, but their performances just they stick to the to the book essentially uh and they usually don't over treat it with like contemporary um uh with contemporary like contemporary takes essentially and so that's when i felt like okay i've experienced like highly experimental takes on art for seven years in berlin and here i am just going back to the uh, roots and the sources and i felt almost like a sense of relief to like uh i feel like uh a certain respect is being given to an uh, to the original art form and um i guess it just made me realize that i was a closeted conservative arts <laughs> arts wise this this whole time because i mean you, you you can surely agree with me that berlin definitely skews um experimental in the arts being that there's not all that money not all that much money there and so it's it's a breeding ground for um experimentations but altogether like it's 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 not that easy to like find conventional sort of uh you know art in berlin like you've been you've been to the opera in berlin right Yes, uh, to the Staatsoper. You've barely, you barely was. I able saw to Wagner s- as yeah. well. So, but one of his longest, uh, except for the his, the longest, I believe, isn't yeah. it? No, I think uh, the I think the the Ringmeister is the longest because it's in three, uh, it's three operas. Oh, because I saw the uh, the master singer of uh, Nuremberg. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how many how many times did you fall asleep during the performance? Uh okay, I was in seat one A, which is front and center. Uh 
That's the sitting. W- that's the worst place to sit at an opera house. Because I know. You, it's like watching t- watching a movie in HD. You like see every fucking pore on the actor's face. It like kills the magic of theater. Uh, should we have our first bleep ever on this podcast? Uh, I don't. I don't know how many uh, the children are listening to us out there. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay. I was sitting with a elderly prominent curator i was his guest uh who likes boys i was told mm-hmm. but anyone who's seen a photo of me over the last 20 years <laughs> would would never call me a boy <laughs> or a twink so there was no hanky panky or uh hands placed on knees uh-huh. uh but <laughs> so we were the very two front seats at this opera which started at 11 (laughs) a.m on a weekday and went until like 8 p.m haven't our people suffered enough (laughs) and like i have i actually have no qualms about falling asleep like in a movie or oh same anything where you know you're far enough back like whatever but when you're there i was digging my nails into my thighs <laughs> just to create so much pain that it would just jolt me awake uh there were three intermissions and the best part was ordering the snacks for the following intermission <laughs> and they were out there waiting for you when you came out yeah and it was like open-faced uh like pate sandwiches and things yeah (laughs) oh my god it's funny because i right before lockdown started here in new york i went to see like not even knowing that it's gonna that it's just a matter of days before it's happening i went to see the flying dutchman at the at the met (laughs) and the met's like it's not notoriously so but you know the like the clientele the uh the audience is usually upward of 70 for the mm-hmm. most part and so it's like it's that funny haha cliche where like uh like people save their coughs for the performance <laughs> the elderly and there's always such like insane hacking during the performances oh and like the elderly where you're like are we gonna are we gonna gurney out someone oh during the intermission <laughs> and anyway so i was i was sitting through the flying dutchman which is a actually a very terrible and boring uh wagner opera and people were coughing their lungs out and this was like uh i think march so like scary oh my god like after we came back from italy right oh actually you know what i'm mistaken it was before i left to italy which is jan which was Uh, january but like still they're saying that like covid was rampant oh it was already there yeah they were definitely super spreading thanks Um, well maybe maybe that's why the company is in a poor financial position because all their benefactors died of covid <laughs> maybe it's that huge cecily brown uh, commission which is actually be- it's beautiful <laughs> it's terribly lit but it's beautiful it's hanging inside the opera as opposed to the other commission which is a, jo- a george condo a huge <sighs> like goopy goopy golden like ceramic um uh bust uh, bust sorry of like something one of his like goofy characters 
and that's money a, well spent money, yeah terribly and that's that's just on a balcony on the second floor oh my like, god uh nestled between the two huge chagalls um, uh you know i think they should do like more contemporary programming like they should mount carmen a hip-hopera oh my god <laughs> with lin-manuel miranda <laughs> <laughs> maybe they could do like a sequel to rent and have just like more la boheme content in there it's honestly don't fucking touch the the program there it's perfectly fine as it is it's so classically uh, traditional it could stand to obviously be way more diverse in terms of the the like the stage people and the behind the scenes the orchestra and everything but like you can't you can't like unpretzel this historical yeah, fact yeah. like opera is like an 18 late 17th 18th 19th uh, century like art form yeah yeah and you can't contort it into like our contemporary politics i mean you could try yeah. but um i thought well they, they try with uh it's like the set design and the costumes and uh, it just seems like an unnecessary kind of meta narrative well that's really that's really big in germany going back to just how how experimental it gets there uh i haven't seen it but there's one wagner opera that's i once saw on youtube that that was uh showing in in berlin i guess and it was just the most ridiculous costumes like like floating dune style like <laughs> characters uh very reminiscent of that snl skit that recurring uh like noonie and noonie skit do you remember that with maya, maya rudolph and uh fred armison they're like an uppity arts uh, like arts couple or art collectors or whatever and their daughter yeah. always brings the like the person she's dating with and he's like a norm a normie um and they introduce themselves uh, and they're like hi i'm noonie and i'm noonie and he's like hi noonie hi noonie no it's noonie <laughs> noonie <laughs> yeah it's so good uh amir will link to it on our instagram thoughts on art that's thoughts with a zero true sure. subscribe to our many feeds both on spotify and itunes and leave a comment if yeah. you're so kind yeah please leave a comment please share uh subscribe follow Tell your friends we're trying to grow exponentially. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to be a donut and podcaster impresario. <laughs> <laughs> you just your end game is to appear on Shark Tank. <laughs> totally, you want to be a shark. Yeah, sharks. <laughs> have I got a podcast for you? Do you? Uh, oh my god! <laughs> Are you gonna pitch it to the shark? Maybe Shark Tank Canada. You remember we were watching that? Oh, Dragons Den. Dragons yes. Den. Yeah. It's funny because we, when we were in uh, uh, Toronto, we were watching that episode where the guy was pitching Goodreads, that iPhone app. That's oh, like yeah. a an int like a virtual library, <laughs> which I I use religiously. You like you uh, you add all the books that you read to your library and all the books that you want to read, and you can rate them and leave reviews and stuff like that. And other people can see what you read and you can see what they read. It's pretty nice, and it was pitched on Dragons Den. Ah, yeah, I should check it out. Yeah. Um. Wait. So going back, we were talking about this one uh, specific dance troupe. I guess did we get to it or? Oh yeah. No, not yet. Okay. So just a a bit more text. Yada yada yada. Uh, so those who know the genre best seem cautiously optimistic. 
I predict that we will have a surge of startling new and inventive work in film and video, says Rosalie Goldberg, director and chief curator of Performa, a biennial in New York City that is planning an eight-hour virtual telethon of newly commissioned performances on November 18th. Performance thrives in difficult times. Does it? What's your take? (laughs) I mean, at least if you're uh, if you're held captive in a physical space and you're made to like you know sit through a directional piece, like that that makes sense, kind of. Or like like I can see how that happens. But like, what 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 makes you like not just disconnect or log off when it's like a a torturous online thing? Also, is it like difficult? I mean, this is an emotionally difficult time, but what about like economically difficult times? Is it because then you can just get away with not paying people? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, sort of as a general practice, I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, so goes, this definitely goes in tandem with the sort of ever-growing focus on the body in the arts in recent years. Yeah. This This really goes hand in hand with that because there's such a focus on um sort of the the spiritual manifesting in the body um i guess um i don't know anyways so there's this one okay so it keeps going and going (laughs) and it keeps going and then much like a performance piece it keeps (laughs) going and going uh you know some poll quotes and then talks about the hushed berlin biennale which i went it was hushed um (laughs) (laughs) and then it gets to the gender bending performance art ensemble uh young boy dancing group known for their transgressive and at times dangerous performances intimately close to crowds Stage two works in October, right before many European capitals were forced into their second wave of closures. And just and just uh, for a second, quoting from a Vice article about this dance troupe, the headline goes, this dance troupe performs with lasers in their butts. Young boy dancing groups co-founder on challenging gender and sexuality with a laser in your anal sphincter. <laughs> and uh, uh yeah how how would you <laughs> how, how would you corroborate the claim that they're gender bending what would you say is gender bendy about them i mean to me that term just sounds so like 80s and 90s gender bending mm-hmm. because i think we've reached no, we've like gone far beyond this point already of this very binary notion of gender. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think it's very like dated to say it's gender bending. And just looking at the picture of uh, pictures of the troop members, it seems like gender bending to them means anyone who's there's actually body fetishism in it because it's just skinny people. So you can't tell who's flat chested and who's a boy. That's the only. Like, that's the only overlap, essentially. And I see a couple of boys kissing, but, like, whatever. And there's a, then there's another picture of a uh, part of the performance where one of the dancers is shoving 
the laser pointer in the other guy's anal sphincter, which, like, whatever rocks your boat. Did anything talk about the candles yet in the butt? We didn't. No. None of those articles. Oh, I see. No. There's only, there's only like, shots, documentation shots with candles, like, strewn around. Okay. And I think at some point that even before COVID hit, or, like, a year and a half ago, they had a performance on uh, Fire Island. I'm just recalling seeing... Oh, one. Home of the Resistance. Yeah. Um, or where the Resistance goes to die, or have a laser <laughs> pointer shoved up its anal sphincter. <laughs> um, how would you describe their performances? the dynamics the like what goes on uh well they're very improvised uh as as the art net piece uh, states it's all about improvisation mm-hmm. um the last i guess last summer maybe the summer before i saw a lot of things on instagram i mean all my usual club kid friends yassing at the performances mm-hmm. <laughs> um and so basically the whole performance is just the bodies kind of meshing together forming these like geometrical shapes there's a lot of uh like faux ass rimmings and yeah. like self uh like uh like sucking your own dick and there's a lot of uh torn pieces of clothing a lot of boobs um it looks actually like a ekhaus latte like outtakes (laughs) from a runway show there's a lot of ekhaus schmata on them a lot of uh literally chewed uh schmata yeah they're just in rags they're all pretty good looking which goes back to my claim of body fetishism like can we finally abolish the the high threshold of who gets to be a performance artist yeah, I mean, uh, of everything we've been talking about for years now, there's still this obsession with conventionally attractive people. Yeah, exactly. It's like there isn't actual diversity. It's like you only have hot people. <laughs> like, yeah. Show me a single fat person yeah. who's not being you know, made the focus of the performance piece or the art piece or whatever that's just yeah. like casually fat. Or, yeah, exactly. Or underwhelmingly or attractive. Obese, or any shape that's not someone who's going to be in a Balenciaga campaign. Yeah, exactly. Um, Anyways, but, so they had one performance in 2019, actually in September. And something went wrong in that performance. So they notoriously have, uh, as we said... Uh, um, Laser pointers sticking out of their uh, buttholes. There's also candles, like lit candles that are shoved into their assholes that are involved in the performance. Open flames. Open flames. Like a lot lot of like pyrotechnical like stuff that's performed by the non like authorized or certified like troop members, (laughs) I guess. Uh, I hope I don't get slapped with a defamation suit by uh, asserting all these claims. Uh, And then they had one performance in Berlin the venue i'm not sure of in september uh september 13th i guess 2019 and uh someone was like spitting <laughs> one of the performers was spitting like ethanol or like uh some sort of lighter fluid some lighter or f- fluid basically inflammable liquid as the <laughs> british say 
and some people caught on fire, which is what fucking happens when you play with fire. Uh, yeah, like literally don't play with fire. Yeah, I guess audience members were sitting in a too close of a circle around the performance in a space that wasn't uh, given any, you know, certification by the local fire th- department and authorities. And you had some pyrotechnics and some people like sustained uh, different levels of a, uh, of uh, different level degrees burns, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, and I, I remember this happening, uh, you know, a, a slight tape delay on Instagram stories, people who were at the performance, uh, and it was very traumatizing for people like having your clothing catch on fire or somebody next to you on fire. All, uh, for, all for the sake of art. Yeah. Uh, and so on their Facebook page, Young Boy Dancing Group uh, made a statement on September 14th, 2019. Uh, it said, we are deeply sorry for and regret the incident that occurred during our performance at Kloster Ruina Berlin. We truly underestimated the situation. This has led us to reevaluate our safety measures and our next steps of our group. If you were affected by the incident, please contact us or help us if you have more information regarding the people who were impacted. Um, so there were 104 comments. <laughs> uh, by innocent bystanders. Yeah. Some of them. Uh, many friends of mine in the comments, uh, actually who you know rightfully so said hey you should be more careful and you should be held accountable for this and just because it's art doesn't mean it exists in a vacuum and you know you just get to do whatever you want mm-hmm. uh yeah and I of get- course there were some in the comments who I mean, I guess the the free spirit, <laughs> the free spirited artist, also has to assume some like adult life responsibilities. Um, I will say, though, scrolling through their Facebook page and Instagram, the the performance documentation is beautiful. It's mesmerizing. Um, kind of just feels like the people. I mean, audience members are made pawns in someone's like end game of just a beautifully you know captured documentation for their work yeah like why do people why do they have to fall prey and victim to your end game of like a beautiful documentation of the work (sighs) so that's uh that's biting my tongue right now yeah that's one thing that's not going to recur in the age of covid you can rest assured yeah everyone just please be careful and uh, have some sense of ethics and morals mm-hmm. <laughs> when you're doing anything as an artist. This is our educational moment of the day. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's funny because I'm again looking at the photo documentation from that Artnet article, which we'll link on our uh, Instagram account. And the pictures are just so beautiful. The composition, the tableaus, to me, that feels like, I don't even need to have seen the performance and it makes me think of uh, Thomas Demand's work. Yeah. German photographer who recreates like iconic uh, historical scenes, I guess, in paper maquettes or uh, am I misdescribing it? 
Um, how would you describe his work, Pshemek? Uh, okay, wait. I just got a, a breaking message on a Instagram DM. Mm-hmm. Just just some background on Young Boy Dancing Group. Yeah. But uh, this anonymous person said, anyway, I'm so sick of seeing people put candles and paintbrushes in their anuses. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can quote me on this. It's linked to classism and European monarchy. The plebeian subjects inverting norms in carnivalesque debauchery. It's like medieval theater or fart jokes for children. Yeah, absolutely. And it definitely carries on this like high school cafeteria mentality or like an arts program in high school where, you know, you feel like the adults have given you like free reign, but you're still within the like realms and context of like your parents authority or the school. So you just act like you're, you know, this like free spirited do it all. Uh, yeah. But then when shit hits the fan, it just exposes the grim reality of like the responsibilities that have to be taken. Yeah. Um, bottom line or my advice, just stick to an end game of beautiful uh, photo documentation of your work. And I'll just bring up again, Thomas DeMond's yeah. work yeah. and just reading. But, but, fr- yeah. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm just reading reading his uh, press release from Matthew Mark's uh, New York Gallery that chose him. Um, so, um, Thomas Demand makes mural scale photographs, but instead of finding his subject matter in landscapes, buildings, and crowds, he uses paper and cardboard to reconstruct scenes he finds in images taken from various media sources. Um, so, some of his works sort of recreate uh historical moments um god i'm struggling to find it now uh like there's a complete reconstruction out of cardboard of the uh um the white house um oval room Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's all made of paper and it just looks like it was shot in the oval office essentially and just Mm. he's sort of very famous for putting like endless amounts of hours into the prep work leading up to just that very singular moment of capturing uh, capturing the scene and to me that just is kind of a similar sort of end game to the performance pieces we were talking about because at the end of the day that's the thing that's going to last and survive and uh and also just thinking about galleries sort of trying to figure out how to monetize artists who are performance artists on the roster. It oftentimes veers into, you know, the gallery essentially asking the artists, okay, well, can you like uh, freeze this moment and turn it into a, like a wool work or a, yeah. pr- a printout or a documentation that we could monetize and sell? Because otherwise, as you said, there's just not a lot of money in it and, and ends up sort of affecting the participants who don't even get paid for their participation. Yeah. And unless you're going to get a MacArthur genius grant, like, yeah, exactly. Even if you're getting grants here and there, like how many grants are you going to get to be, uh, not precarious unless you're of means and privilege. And, you know, I'm kind of torn on that because I feel like with performance arts, the less money involved in it, the more, kind of uh fresh and creative it is because you have to like uh overcome all these obstacles and hurdles 
and you really have to want it and i guess you really have to have something creative and genuine yeah to say and i feel like the more money thrown at it the more sort of a a big production it turns it into and not necessarily sort of improves it yeah well maybe it just needs to be structured in the same way you know as a more traditional theater or something where okay you pay admission to go see this piece and maybe they got other funding from public sources or what have you and people just get paid appropriately and none of this you know like asking for favors or strong arming people into something because it's exposure mm -hmm. like yes we all have a uh, free will but when you ask people constantly to do things for free for you it just drives down the uh the market rate for performers right I will say one of the artists who've managed to kind of hit the sweet spot is Donna Juanca with her beautiful performances that are extracted into sort of still shots from, um, you know, blown up uh, detail shots from her uh, made up, um, the made up bodies of her participants, her, her dancers. Uh, so she, she, she applies all this like uh, artistic, sort of expressionist makeup onto her performances bodies and then outside of the context of the performance these still shots detail shots turn into like large scale paintings which she then overworks uh that's one one example that comes to mind um but i will say it again uh i haven't mentioned it on a pod yet i'm sorry to be nazi about it but i feel like there should be a lottery for some forms of art <laughs> <laughs> where like you know any heavy di didactic conceptual art or performance art, I feel like there should be an, uh, like a cap of like 40 artists <laughs> to produce <laughs> arts in that medium every year. And it's very competitive. We should try to democratize it. So like there's no nepotism or anything like that, but it also doesn't oversaturate the market with a lot of garbage. Uh, so sorry that I'm offering a Thatch Thatcherian like yeah, sorry. <laughs> of the market. Sorry, sorry, we're art world neocons. Yeah, we're the Artnet <laughs> Noose. We should change the name of the podcast to Artnet Noose. Uh, sorry to strangle uh, the creativity and the freedom of yeah. the art world. Well, well, like you said, Berlin and experimentation. I think it's great if people experiment, but then it's kind of like then you have like ninety ninety nine percent. God, I won't even say it. <laughs> say it, Pshemek. Say it, say it. The more experimentation, the more garbage. Yeah, exactly. Like, like the film trailer I sent you yesterday. Yeah, I mean, I hate Which to sound like... Which will go nameless. I, I hate to sound like a capitalist, but like, God knows there's a lot of garbage in the... Uh, oh, that's the capitalism police uh, coming for you. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I live in a very busy uh, avenue. Um, so... <laughs> I was going to say, yes, the market here is hyper-capitalistic, capitalistic, and it, there's definitely a form of violence in it, and it, funnily enough, doesn't produce better quality work across the board, but the same could be said for the inverse of a market that's underfunded, not driven by, uh, you know, by, by monetary, uh, by monetary features. There's also a lot of garbage there, like... I don't know what the solution is. Uh, maybe there's just 
like the threshold, the entry level to becoming an artist is just way too lax. And you should just apply like like entrance thresholds and yeah (laughs) i mean i'm all for every one of us having dreams and the opportunity to go for those dreams um reach for the stars but but i mean there's so much like dishonesty about the feasibility of your exactly i wish people were just more honest about the prospects yeah which is why I want to build a donut empire. <laughs> How is that related? <laughs> I'm saying, I, uh, I'm, yeah, it, I'm <laughs> at a loss for words right now. <laughs> um, I, uh, it's 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 not time to make the art it's time to make the donuts <laughs> yeah and here on artnet news we don't sell the steak we sell the sizzle <laughs> uh i'm just i like i'm still doing my thing i am making my work i have shows here and there but frankly i'm sick of the rat race and that's what it is it's so precarious and it's just like wait can i stop you there you don't you don't sense that maybe the rat race has subsided if not diminished significantly now with covid uh i felt great in the spring Mm -hmm. because everything was just put on pause and then it felt like we all got out of it especially in europe and now i just feel like i'm under duress totally like right I feel trapped. Uh, I'm not very optimistic. I know they announced this vaccine. It's 90% effective. <sighs> you got a chin up. I know. <laughs> but I'm just saying it's going to take like a long time for everything to have a semblance of normalcy. Um, but... I mean, I, I do agree with you. I feel like the like opportunities are scarce now for different reasons than you know before covid yeah i feel like the the field was flooded before covid and so it was very hard to get your foot in the door but now opportunities are just across the board scarcer or maybe it's just that they're less apparent and register less on the radar of the art world i do suspect that there's a a good amount of sort of activity that went not not underground per se but that is going unnoticed with yeah. the sort of the end of the culture sort of driven um industry which was the art world before covid i feel like the the whole sort of event spectacle and uh momentum and build up uh that sort of is no longer a a factor in the market uh I, i guess what i'm trying to say is i think there's still plenty of activity out there it's just we don't register it doesn't register necessarily no no definitely no but i think it's always important to be cognizant that it's like, yes, we do, we make art because it means something to us. You know, we're learning something or discovering something about ourselves in the process. But you cannot ignore that it is a job people do and a profession. And there's nothing wrong with saying that. Mm-hmm. And it's a very odd, ambiguous profession compared to others. It's not something where you're allowed to knock on doors, be pushy. Nope. You know, 
send portfolios out. Even if you're a graphic designer, that is so encouraged. Mm -hmm. You start a LinkedIn, you harass people, you cold call them. You really shove your foot in the door. And as an artist, that doesn't work. It's so frowned upon. Yeah. And that needs to change. Maybe <laughs> like I, maybe that would, you know, I, th I think it's just impossible to generalize the sort of secret sauce to success or getting a leg up in this profession. It's enormously frustrating. And the tendencies to try to, you know, assign blame to faults in the structure, yeah. Um, or in yourself or in your own work or yeah, it's, it's, uh, endless. And I mean, that's why my, oh, sorry, go ahead. My only advice is to just not, not place the blame on yourself because just look around you. There's so much garbage out there. You, you <laughs> exactly. can't be making something that's like objectively worse than most of the garbage out there. Yeah. So cheer up. Not you. Yeah. That's <laughs> a, yeah. No listener. Um, are, uh, yeah, no, it's just, you know, it's, uh, it's like running a self-employed business where you're just constantly trying to hustle for money, hustle for opportunities and it starts to wear on you. And I think it's fine to admit that yeah. that's why you're listening to this podcast because no one else will say it publicly. <laughs> and, <laughs> I, I'll also I'll also say that if you do come from money, let's just be honest about that. Your chances of it's not even a leg up, but your chances of uh, getting your foot in the door are are more secure. There's a uh, higher yeah, there's because, a higher probability. Yeah, if there weren't budgetary constraints, I would be in New York right now, or I would be in LA. Uh, but, you know, it, it also relies on the simple fact that if you come from money, uh, dealers have an easier time selling your work because in your sphere, there are people who would buy the work, people of means. And so that's just how it works. Like at the end of the day, if you're a commercial artist who makes, you know, pieces for sale in one form or another, uh, you have to be able to sell it to someone. And if you already come with a Rolodex of, you know, potential buyers, yeah, it's very attractive to dealers. Yeah, just uh, look at Chloe Wise. Yeah, or like, why do you think, what's her name, uh, that print, the uh, British royal, what's her name, who just got married, Eugene, Eugenie? Oh, Beatrice? No, no the sister. other one, who just got married, she works at a... And she works at a gallery. Yeah, a big Chelsea gallery. Like, <sighs> anyways, I, uh, yeah. It's, uh, I, I don't want to end on a pessimistic note, but uh. no, I'm not. I'm just saying I'm I uh, sorry I took it there, but I'm just saying I would like some just more stability in my life. Right. I love what I do. I feel very blessed. I have exhibition opportunities. I mean, your work is it, gorgeous. Gorgeous. Thank you. So is yours. Thank you. But there's just too much out of my hands and I'm not a control freak by any means. But, you know, when you're just waiting for somebody to do the other 50% to get your 50%, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what can you do? It's like, I have bills to pay. Or then you get in conflict with people because they're like, you sold that print for too cheap. Mm -hmm. It's like, I have bills to pay <laughs> and a giant mouth to feed. <laughs> 
<laughs> I have to go on my daily bang bang. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, back to back meals for those of you yeah. who don't know. Uh, but and can I just quote Brad Tormel? who famously said, I forget on one of his uh, videos, that like, name one person who appeared on an art forum cover in the past 40 years. Like, those things are so time-specific. <laughs> it's fame, true. Fame and or notoriety, notoriety are so time-specific. And if a single artist or another artist seem to be at a disproportionate peak at the moment, just remind yourself that the passage of time is sort of the biggest the most effective tool in the shed or just like a reassuring fact that a lagging a notion of lagging success is only a notion of lagging success it's in your head yeah exactly yeah but my my uh i guess my big thing is just there's no shame in having a job in addition to being an artist i mean on the contrary i think you should be able to derive pride from having a job Exactly. Uh, if anything, it just goes to sort of prove that you really want to uh, succeed in this. Yeah. And so if anyone has any suggestions for the name for my donut empire, <laughs> uh, feel free to DM them. You'll get free donuts for life. Uh-huh. Uh, I think I'm going to start doing this at the now cool market or one of the other markets. And then... Uh, move on to bricks and mortar as they say mm-hmm. and um on top of that if you have any uh, hot tips suggestions questions please dm us on thoughts on art on instagram that's thoughts with a zero and uh feel free to add us subscribe to our feeds on spotify and itunes leave a positive review if you like us and if you don't you may unsubscribe <laughs> and we'll block you we will block you um you will be he or she who shall not be named for eternity. (laughs) And, uh, yeah. Do we have any other thoughts for today? Um, I just want to know what you're up to this week. Uh, just trying to relax my frayed nerves with this post-election sort of uh, unending kind of, uh, disaster of a headache. Um, that's about it, I think. I don't really have anything planned. Oh, actually, what am I talking about? We're going to Kentucky. Um, what? Yeah, we're. <laughs> you didn't tell me that. Yeah, yeah. So Jordan has a show there, and I have a piece Amazing. in the show as well. And we're driving. Oh, Mazel! Thank you. And so we're That's so exciting. Thank you. We're driving there to the big uh, hot zone, hot spot outbreak oh my God. area. I saw on the map. Yeah, but there's like, Ugh. I mean, there's no urban density there in Louisville. um so we're driving over louisville slugger it's actually pronounced louisville um (laughs) can you take a photo next to the giant baseball bat for me please i will yeah okay um and so we're gonna spend a couple of nights there and then we're gonna uh drive over to visit my cousin in north carolina in raleigh raleigh sorry oh nice all these fucking like a red state yeah but barely so uh i just fucking wish american like u.s cities didn't have like uppity pronunciations you have to like know how to say like louisville and raleigh and houston street oh well the houston street thing is so stupid yeah like i'm sorry oh my god what about you what's coming up for you 
Uh, God, what am I up to? Tomorrow I'm going to help a friend's mother run an errand. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to drive into Germany for half an hour. Hope I don't get blocked at the border. Mm -hmm. (laughs) God, could you imagine? It's like coming back. It's like, you need a 14 day day quarantine because you just left the country. (laughs) Or maybe the Stasi got word of your defamation of the new airport. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody ratted you out. Oh my God. Is everything, bribes. is everything locked down there at the moment? More or less. Like, you can't go to the gym. Like, here and Germany are pretty similar situations. Like, you can't dine in. You can't go to the gym. Only kind of essential stores are open. I mean, I've been seeing um, Berliners' Instagram stories. No one's fucking wearing a mask. People wear a mask. What is so difficult in understanding oh that it helps? God. It helps. Well, a, a nameless apartment gallery, uh, people were not wearing masks in that photo, and they're having an opening this weekend, so... I mean, if only they had a scientist <laughs> female leader, things would have looked different, <laughs> but I guess there's a long way uh, to go. Oh, yeah, and... Yeah, I'm just not looking forward to this winter, so <laughs> sorry to be very pessimistic. Uh, I'm actually waiting to hear back from an applic- from a residency application I uh, put in for a uh, two-month-long residency in Israel. I have not seen my family in almost a year now. Oh, my God. Um, it's just so challenging for me because if I wanted to go visit them, I'll have to uh, self-quarantine for 14 days, which sounds like a needless sort of prison experiment or experience <laughs> and so but this will give me the opportunity to go there and just like you know chill and relax for uh, two weeks in quarantine and then just continue working in a studio space oh nice yeah amazing so fingers crossed crossing everything all righty well it was nice chatting with you Pshemek. nice chatting with you amir have a nice Cheers. week <laughs> God. Juicy <laughs> <laughs> in the air. Bye.